Welcome to Your Wellbeing Podcast, brought to you by the Mind Body Spirit Festival. So today we're going to be joined by Mira Manuk in London. She's joining us today at Mortimer House. She was born and raised in London, where she grew up in a family strongly rooted in Indian heritage. And this, in conjunction with attending Ramkathas, also known as nine-day spiritual events from a young age all over India, inspired Mira's passion for Indian philosophy and spirituality, and Ayurveda in particular. Her first book, Saffron Soul, is a cookbook inspired by the vegetarian food of the Gujarat region. And Mira runs the cafe at Chai Yoga Soho, Chai by Mira. Mira, hi, welcome. Thank you for joining us today in London. Thank you for having me. Such an honour. Delighted. Mira, tell us about your background for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with you or your work. Sure. I started my whole food journey about six years ago when I actually moved back to London. Having lived abroad, I lived in Dubai and Uganda and travelled a lot and I was working as a travel journalist and it suddenly dawned on me that I thought I was being healthy, but actually I'd gone down the wrong path of really soaking up all those media fads of eating little and often and high sugar, low fat, Mm. um, and doing all those things that I hadn't grown up doing as a result, causing havoc in my own digestion, Mm. which already was sort of a bit sluggish, but I just made it a lot worse. And especially when you travel a lot, Mm. it um, exacerbates the situation. So I suddenly realized um, while I was in India one week that Indian food is healthy and that I shouldn't be bringing odd, weird snacks like popcorn packets and granola bars and baked crisps to India because actually Indian food is so nutritious and so good for you and so healing and Mm. nourishing. And I was like, well, I grew up eating all this incredible food that my mother, my grandmother, my aunts cooked. And I suddenly just because the media told me no oil, you know, don't have curries because it contains oil. It just sort of became this rooted, wrong ideology that I then took on for years and years and years that never shifted. And I, as a result, lacked nutrition. My energy levels just suddenly kind of went down in the middle of the day. I was eating a lot of sugar, already Mm. have a sweet tooth, so I was feeding that. Um, And I was eating like snacks rather than food. Mm. And I thought all that time I was being healthy. So it suddenly dawned on me and I was like, no, I need to write a book about this. And obviously that's when the journey began and that's when everything began. But I thought, oh, I can, you know, write a cookbook and go back to London and learn all these recipes that Mm. I grew up eating and write a cookbook. But obviously, little did I realise, even though I got an agent at the time, that you can't just publish a cookbook without being either a known person or having a restaurant. Um, And so most of these publishers really enjoyed and liked the concept because actually it hadn't been tackled before. There wasn't anything like it. Mm. Um, But they came back and said, well, who is she? And so it took me a couple of years to sort of then experiment, come up with my own sort of trousseau of Indian-inspired healthy vegetarian recipes, doing my own supper clubs, getting myself known, and then publishing Saffron Soul. So the original book that I was going to publish, actually, was called Green Dal Stories. Green Dal Stories. (laughs) Yeah, so funny, yeah. And then we had a cover for it and everything, and it was like I was going out to these publishers with that concept, which I had already photographed a little bit. Um, And some of the recipes from that are still in Saffron Soul, and the concept's very much the same or similar um but it transpired two years later having you know having done lots of events and supper clubs and talks and things like that so did you do those supper clubs to raise awareness for who you are in the book or was that something that you wanted to do as part of this journey anyway after you had released the book yeah 
No, I think I didn't know what supper clubs were before that. Right. It was while I was starting on this food journey, yeah. starting to see who's in food and what mm. they do, mm. that I started attending other people's supper clubs and okay. realizing that this is something I can do. Yeah. And slowly that concept started taking off and that's how it started. And that was also the time when so Instagram began. Okay. So I remember being on my yoga, I used to do yoga retreats every year, not my own, but I'd go on yoga retreats because I was on my own sort of soul searching yeah. journey. I'd just moved back to London, um, having been married abroad, having sort of not lost my friends, but really not really been in London, in disconnected. And so and also yeah. I was connecting with a whole new part of me, which was interested in yoga, searching for something in food. And I had no friends in with, with these interests. Mm. So I'd go to sort of yoga classes and wonder if I could become friends with people and sit there <laughs> and be like, I really want some more friends in this field and like people who are interested in these sorts of things. I don't think that's just a concern for, for then. I think people still feel like that now when they go to Yeah, I agreed. And that's why I think these sorts of events like yoga brunches, supper clubs, wellness events. They bring people together. Yes. They connect people, which I think was there back in the day, but mm. not quite as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that all part of the journey as well? Because you mentioned that people wouldn't want a cookbook from someone that either wasn't a celebrity or known or didn't have their own place. So was was uh, the development of Chai by Mira, your cafe at Chai Yoga, part of that journey? Or is it something that came later? So I published Saffron Soul, after which I continued to do what I was doing, supper clubs, mm events Mm. um cookery shows that sort of thing yeah and then i continued my yoga journey um i used to go to all the different tri yogas because i loved (laughs) them and at that time there wasn't as many yoga studios no so now we have lots of options and at that time there wasn't that many and tri yoga was very strong and still is very strong and rooted in its own sort of you know experienced Mm. teachers which is amazing and I was going to the Soho Tri Yoga and it just so happened that the cafe became available. I was on their radar, they were on my radar. Oh it just my sort goodness. of it was sort of serendipitous in a way. Yeah. Um it was around two thousand eighteen summer. So it's August quite recently. Yeah. August is when it sort of started. We then signed the contract in September, October, and mm. I launched in November. Amazing. It was crazy. I had no clue. I was I wanted to. I didn't want to do a cafe or a restaurant. <laughs> it wasn't in my, on my radar. It sort of just came my way, and I took the opportunity. Beautiful. Um, and and it really worked with my concept because yeah. it kind of brings together the two things I love the most. It's going well. I love it. It's such a wonderful location. Yeah. Um, they have five locations: Trioga, yes. but I've only launched in Soho, and I also sell my treats in the Ealing branch as well. But I love Trioga and their yeah. philosophy. I love you know the people that run it. Yeah. Um, it's just a good vibe. Yeah. And a very homely vibe as well. Yeah. So is the food at your cafe and in your cookbook largely what you were doing at those supper clubs? And do you still do these supper clubs? Can people still come and attend something that you're hosting like this and get to experience your food and, and experience you? So at my cafe, we have, a, it's very Ayurvedic. Mm-hmm. So we have kitri, um, we kind of make it differently every time. And then we have um, grain bowls and some toast. It's it's not an extensive menu, but it's delicious and it's mm. wholesome and it's nourishing. Very Ayurvedic, as I said. Um, and lots of chai, of course. <laughs> um, different types of chai. It's really lovely. So my second book is all about well-being, rituals, Ayurveda. Mm. It's called Prajna, Ayurvedic Rituals Prajna. for Happiness. Yes. Yeah. Um, and what does prajna mean? Prajna or pragna um, is the Sanskrit word for wisdom, ultimate wisdom, innate wisdom, the wisdom of the soul, sort of understanding our journey of 
our body, soul, mind, spirit, everything mm. in this world. Mm. Um, it's hard to describe Prajna. I've sort of spent three pages in the book explaining what Prajna might mean. Right. Because it's really extensive and wide-ranging. I mean, it's mentioned in Hinduism and Buddhism. It's a very sort of important word. But mm. Prajna is... Um, it's not really to do with Ayurveda necessarily. It's more to do with philosophy. And this book is about Ayurveda, but it's a lot more about, it's also about philosophy, spirituality, our journey in this world, understanding that, because actually mind, body, spirit all come together Mm. to to bring us more in tune with life. So even though it's a book on rituals, it's not just to get that misconception out of the way for people. It's not rituals based around food. It's all encompassing. It's all encompassing, yes. So waking up in the morning and smiling. Now that might not be Ayurvedic, but it's such a lovely thing to do because actually what I say and what I start the book by saying is that while you know rituals are enhance your day and they add a spring in your step and they ground you on a normal day, if you're going through that dip in life, mm. these same rituals will sort of pick you up a bit and lift mm. you and lift mm. your spirits. So like a smile it changes the way your mind starts thinking because it actually adds positivity to your day. And mm-hmm. actually neuroscience is starting to prove a lot of these things. You Absolutely. know, even, yeah. you know, the law of attraction, mm-hmm. um, the um, vision boarding, which mm-hmm. is what my friend, which is, you know, Dr. Tara Swart, who's also yeah. speaking at Mind, Body, Spirit. She's all about vision boarding, about manifesting. And all of that is being proven by neuroscience. Yes. Um, the thing is, we didn't necessarily always understand the reason. So actually yeah. um, making it palatable and to the modern day reader and Indian and not Indian, whatever they are, makes it a lot more appealing. Because once you understand the reason for something, you don't question it. You start doing it because actually you understand why Why? it's helping you. So even the simplest thing, for example, like last night I was leading a workshop at Lululemon actually called Ritual Journaling. We were talking about how understanding the reason of, for example, why you might need to wash off oils from your body once you've had a massage, which is something I never used to do. But my Mm. Ayurvedic teacher was telling me that actually think about it. When you have a massage, you release toxins. Why would you want to keep those toxins on your body? You're just going to soak you might soak them in again. So yeah. actually, you shouldn't keep oil on your body, even though therapists people, generally tell, tell you. It's yeah, like, oh, it's good to keep, keep those Which, oils on because you. Because it's great. That also makes, that made sense to me my whole life. Yes. Keep the oil on you. It soaks into your skin. It nourishes your skin. But yeah. actually, when you think about the reason of you release toxins during a massage, yeah, and then sense. you're meant to wash it off, yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. it makes so much sense. It's clear. Yeah. Do you think... A Gujarati diet is an Ayurvedic diet, or have you just taken components of Gujarati food and diet and cuisine um, and brought that in line with Ayurveda? Can you tell us about that? Because your background is Gujarati. Gujarati, exactly. Um, me too. <laughs> and so, of course, the food and the things that you would have been exposed to um, would, of course, been much more Gujarati. But um, I think there's there's uh, different perspectives on how because the Indian subcontinent is huge and there's so many different diets across the Indian subcontinent, but they're all bound together by Ayurveda. So yeah. can you talk about that a little bit, please? That's a really beautiful way of putting it. They're all bound together by Ayurveda. I think they are. And I think it is infused in every element of life. And yeah. things that we grew up doing or that our parents have done, they may not call those things Ayurvedic. Exactly. But it's just part of cooking or part of life. Mm. Um, so Which I is think... what Ayurveda means. Exactly. Yeah, of science of life. Exactly. Um, I think... 
Gujarati food is can be Ayurvedic, like Kitchri is Ayurvedic, mm-hmm. but Kitchri is also made in other parts of India. It's not mm. necessarily only Gujarati. I thought it was. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Kitchri, Gadi, I mean, Gadi is a Gujarati thing. Yes. So I think it is Ayurvedic, but I think you've got to understand, I mean, we've also got to understand that Ayurveda is to, to do with body type. Mm-hmm. So if I... Do you I, go into that, into detail on that? So if someone's coming across your work and they think, well, actually, I don't know anything about Ayurveda, I don't know about my body type... Does your does your book and does your work help someone figure that out for themselves as well? No, I don't. I think I've given some uh, resources at the back where okay. you can go to a practitioner okay, and good. understand yeah. because actually it's something that you... So the practitioner basically puts um, their fingers on your pulse mm-hmm. and fr- on your wrist and figures out from that what body type you are. So there's obviously three doshas, vata, pitta and kapha. From your pulse. And from your mm-hmm. pulse, they figure out what you're most dominant in and you're dominant in two usually. There are some people who are tridoshic and you're dominant in two and then you won't change, that won't change, the things that you're dominant in won't change during your life most likely, but you want to bring that into balance more. Mm. So you might have, you might be dominant in pitta, for mm. example, but you might have too much pitta. So how do you lessen that? Mm. And pitta is the fire element. So understanding how that not only aggravates the body, but also the mind, because that will create anger, mm. energy, fire, passion, all of those things. And it also dictates how you you are as a person. So mm. vata, pitta, you know, vata is the air and wind or whereas yeah. um, pitta is energy, fire, all of that. And kapha is more water-based. Mm. So it's, it's interesting and it makes a lot of sense, but it's hard to, it's hard to identify it yourself. Mm. And so what my book focuses on more is while doshas are important and I explain that concept, I talk more about the sattvic food. Yes. So there are three, yeah, there's sattva, rajas and tamas. And sattvic food is the more pure food. Tamasic food is the food that makes you lethargic, tired, mm-hmm. um, exhausted, not feeling great. And then rajasic food is in between where it gives you sort of that slight energy vitality, but it also... Um, it's not as pure as sort of sattvic mm-hmm. food. And those those three things also um, work for your mentality and your lifestyle mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. So, so leading a more sattvic lifestyle, which actually is a more yogic philosophy. Yes, absolutely. It's mentioned in, say, Bhagavad Gita. Um, and actually working towards that as a starting point, mm-hmm. you know, trying to remove processed foods from your diet, yeah. for example, yeah. is creating a more sattvic lifestyle so what um what was it that made you decide to write prajna what was it that you felt was required with these rituals that you're sharing in your book it's the idea came about when i was having a conversation with my agent and i thought well can i actually do this i don't really know what this book is about that we're speaking (laughs) about but can I actually even write this book? Because it sounds very ambitious. And so my it's agent... it's been incredibly well received. Yeah, it's been... People it. really enjoying it. And I think the reason being is that it delves into enough depth, but not so much that you get lost in the sort of details. Okay. And it, it's not so surface level that it feels basic too. Because mm-hmm. I think rituals can sometimes feel a little bit like sit in a bath with candle do you know what I mean and I think that's great but I'm understanding some of the reasons as to why for example a mantra based meditation might be an easier concept and why mantras and affirmations work mm-hmm. or for example why Ayurveda talks about digestion and how to keep the digestive fire ignited during the day and therefore leaving gaps between meals is really important but understanding those reasons mm. is why I think my book is an easily digestible book and you're you're writing it from from your perspective and things which i imagine things which have helped you and that you've learned along the way or um do you feel like 
there were things that you perhaps missed out in your book because you weren't exposed to them or you don't know about them? I think it's everything. So it started off with things that I do. But as you delve into rituals and you figure out, well, that's a ritual, but that's not something I thought of as a ritual. Um, And and adding in things that I haven't. For example, since I've written the book, I was telling you vision boarding. I think that's Mm. a really wonderful thing. And had I known more about that, I may have put that in. EFT, which is emotional freedom technique, is something that I did when I was going through my really hard time in life. And I haven't really returned to it, but I actually having written this book or while I was writing this book, I started doing it again because it really helped me in that difficult time. Yes. Um, and and then I actually spoke recently at um, the House of Commons for International Women's Day. And in that, I was talking about how rituals at the best of times can raise our vibration, but at the worst of times, it can really lift our soul and our energy and our positivity in life. So I know that especially people in our audience, we, with Mind, Body, Spirit, have access to so many amazing speakers and presenters and philosophies. And perhaps people can, at times, feel like they have too many rituals to do in a day. Can you talk about the balance between life and rituals? Absolutely. When you do have routine, it's easier to have rituals because, say, for example, I know I have a lunch break, I know what's in my vicinity right. I know there's a park nearby yes. so I'm like okay every single day for 10 minutes before I go get my lunch I'm going to go to that park sit there for 10 minutes no one needs to know where I am put my headphones on listen to some music and I, or I listen to the birds or whatever it is come back go have my lunch on my way back but twice a week I'll also cook at home and take my lunch in so it's easier to sprinkle so those, those that, little those rituals examples of a ritual of a ritual yes. so that's just a very very basic level ritual which is maybe to do with the body because it's to do with food Mm. obviously that will have an impact on the mind and the soul but I'm just saying that's a body level or for example I have a yoga studio next to my work so on my way home twice a week I'm going to go to that yoga studio whatever it is you can sprinkle it to your life so these are my daily rituals waking Mm. up and having my herbs having lemon ginger in water um, making sure I have a bigger lunch rather than a and a smaller dinner mm. um, on maybe three days and these are my weekly rituals which are once a week I want to do yoga once a week I want to do mm. a spin class once a week and those rituals can be things you already do yes. but it's just maintaining that momentum and making sure you do those things every single week so for example I love of the regularity there because they get forgotten if you don't write them down and you don't remember to do them because you <laughs> know the importance of those things in your life. Yeah. So, for example, I love Kundalini Yoga and I love doing it in Camden at Tri Yoga because I, there's two teachers I particularly love. And if I don't make an effort to be like, okay, let me put it in my diary that every Tuesday or Thursday night I go, then I won't go. I know it's in my head. So every Tuesday, Thursday night, I'll remember, oh, yeah, there's Kundalini Yoga, but this tonight I'm just not feeling it. Mm. Or I have something else on. I forgot that that was on and I'd book something else. Then I just won't make the effort to go. But keeping it as a regular practice, mm. you can then understand the difference it makes to you. Yeah, so there's two things in that. I, I can imagine on one level that um, many, many people now nowadays and at the pace of life don't have a regular routine the way people traditionally would have. So on one hand, having rituals like this is a way to be able to anchor yourself within your day and within the lifestyle that you're choosing for yourself as well. So perhaps you can create routine around those rituals. But is there also something to be said for um, when you're talking about writing down these rituals? Does it also make you aware of perhaps things which you're doing which have become rituals without you becoming aware of them? Um, which perhaps aren't so productive or contributive to the lifestyle that you want. 
Yeah, absolutely. Have and you I ever think... found that for yourself, that you've become aware of a ritual, inverted commas, so to speak, um, that was more detrimental, actually, to what you were doing? That's an interesting question. I mean, for example, if I'm overdoing my exercise mm. routine, mm. doing too much yoga, too much spinning, too mm. much, I don't know, walking, whatever it is, then it's important to rest. Yeah. So give your body that time to rest. If your ritual is like, okay, I'm going to wake up every day at 6am, but I'm still going to sleep at like... 12 30 mm. then that may not be the best ritual to have if you know that you're going to be awake till 12 30 maybe you need to give yourself that sort of extra hour of rest in the morning so what's the difference between rituals and habits and routines maybe you can also shed some light on that too i think rituals have a much more sort of spiritual element to them okay they don't need to be spiritual but there's just something quite have a spiritual, spiritual about them something okay. quite like uplifting about them okay um and habit I, I think habit has a monotony to it. So you don't want to think of a ritual yeah. as something that, oh, you have to do. Mm. And There's it's almost nice a lack to... of awareness that goes along with a habit as well, right? That you're sort of on autopilot without having awareness about what you're yeah. doing. Yes, maybe. And that yeah. there's not a mindfulness about it. Yeah. And therefore, ritual has a bit more of a mindfulness element to it. Like, you know, you're sort of... It becomes a habit, mm. and which is nice because, you know, waking up and stretching is a lovely habit to have. And <laughs> if you're not doing it mindfully, fine. You're still stretching. It's great. Yeah. But it's nice to have a, a, a ritual awareness that you're having a ritual, you're doing a ritual, because that will make you stick to that ritual mm. more rather than it becoming monotonous. Yes. Um, what was the third thing? Habit, ritual, and... Routine. Routine. I think it's nice to have rituals as part of your routine. I'm not a very routine person, but mm. I think certain rituals can be carried through but no matter where you are. If I'm traveling, you can still do breathing exercises. Mm. So having these rituals as part of your daily life, like if I like doing Kapal Bhati, which is the breath of fire, and the um, alternate nostril breathing because it gives me that you know, energy in the morning, more oxygen to my brain and helps fire up my digestive system. Mm. I should be doing that everywhere. It doesn't need to be part of my daily routine in London only. Yeah. So it's ritual can be carried on anywhere. And if you can't do it, so what? Like, that's totally fine. Yeah. So you were saying that this journey began about six years ago because you were noticing all these uh, destructive, let's say, tendencies um, that had made their way into your into your routine and into your lifestyle. You already talked about food and, and other lifestyle choices. So is what you share with the masses now and with everyone that comes across your work and your food and your books um, and your workshops, is that knowledge that you've amassed within the last six years or is it actually something that has been part of the tapestry of you and that was what made you aware that you were perhaps on the wrong track? How did How did those two come together? So as a travel journalist and being out in Dubai, being editor of this magazine really connected me to yoga. But at the same time, literally, when I was editor of this magazine, I was going through a really hard time um, in my marriage where I didn't know what was happening. Um, my husband basically said he didn't want to be with me, but I just didn't have a reason and I didn't really know what was going on and he was never there. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't really living in Dubai. I'd only just started living there because I was living this peripatetic lifestyles all over the place between Dubai and New York, I ended up actually traveling everywhere and being going to India whenever I wanted. It was just a very odd lifestyle to lead. And while I embraced it for a long time, it got to a stage where I, my sort of brain and my life started falling apart. So becoming editor of this magazine and going into yoga um, allowed me to reconnect with something that was inherent, mm. but I hadn't really understood for a long time mm. or hadn't really gone back to. So going back to yoga also opened the door to doing food 
because it was wow. while yeah. I was on that yoga journey yes. that it dawned on me that I was, you know, you sort of crave good food when you're doing good things like yoga. And I think being in Mumbai, I was in Mumbai doing yoga for a whole week, um, literally at this place called Yoga House. And I just sit there mm. all day long and do yoga mm. and eat some good food. And that was when it dawned on me. And I don't, I wouldn't say it was necessarily yoga that brought me to that realization, but it was that time in my life. Yes where I was on a search, where I was on a journey, where I was lost in my brain, my mind, my soul, everything, that it dawned on me that actually food is where I need to start or where I need to do something. Mm. Um, and Just taking it back to, yeah, back so, to basics. And that was when, when I was in Mumbai thinking about this, it dawned on me that actually the food I'd grown up eating, again, inherent, something I'd grown up doing, yeah, the flavours yeah. that were familiar to my palate, um, that I needed to go back to those and actually mm. understand how those were made. And that I needed to share that with the world because on a global scale, people think of Indian food as unhealthy and something that they crave when they're like, you know, on a Friday night with, you know, beer yeah. and go to the local curry house. Of course, that has changed now as well. But at the yeah. time, I think especially in the UK, but people I was speaking to, they were all like, yeah, Indian food, healthy, really? Like, yeah. they think of it as doused in cream and oil and heavy yeah. and rich and none. Which because is they- crazy for people that grow up eating Indian food and think of it as the most healthy thing and, and then not having that home-cooked Indian food is, is the unhealthy option exactly. in their diet. And I think people think and are afraid of cooking Indian food at home because they think they have to replicate or they only define Indian food by what they eat in restaurants. Yeah. But, of course, in the I mean, last five years... I mean, the said for Chinese food. Many people say that's not real Chinese food, but when you're in a restaurant and you have Chinese food, you think of it as, as the way we, you know, maybe traditionally have seen it in the UK and, exactly. and in the Western world, but actually now more and more so, um, the whole of the Asian subcontinent's food is becoming much more accessible to all of us in, in this really beautiful, healthy, real way. Because yeah, I feel absolutely. like in the East, there's a much stronger connection with food. Yeah, I think so. Um, food and health, rather. I think, you know, people are taking elements and the, the, the best elements from each yeah. each other's cultures yeah. Yeah. and yeah. also realising the value of spices for example mm. um, whether it's turmeric, saffron, cardamom and there's just, you know, gut health has become such an issue now um, and vegetarianism mm. as well has become such, oh veganism is now the big thing and how to flavour those dishes, how to flavour vegetables and make them taste better. Mm. So we're, we're seeing this sort of fusion, and which is lovely, but also we're seeing that Indian food is now not just defined by the sort of Balti houses and the curry <laughs> houses and, you know, the traditional Bengali-type yeah. heavy, rich or food Punjabi that you get, or Punjabi food. Yeah. food. It's now a whole wide range of, yeah. like, cuisines that you get in London. Mm, mm. So people know what a dosa is, and that's really healthy. <laughs> and people know what... Well, people may not know what Gujarati food is because still there aren't that many restaurants that do it. I don't know hardly any Gujarati restaurants in London. But... I know literally a handful. Yeah, so there aren't many. But right? then for the Gujaratis that are in London, they might just be like, I've made that at home. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so. exactly. So what I mean is yeah. that what people now define as Indian food is different to what... Yeah people define as Indian food about six years ago when I started doing this. And when I wrote my book, I thought, I want to write a book which comprises recipes that you can actually make at home and that are simple and that someone like me, because I came from a background of not cooking, really, mm. can actually, if, if I can cook it, then other people can cook it. Yeah. And so that's how I went about with creating this book yeah. um, because I wanted to home-cooked food. Yeah. Simple food that tastes really delicious but doesn't use a huge array of ingredients that you have to grind and use a pestle and mortar for. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a place for that. But yeah. I wanted to 
focus on simple home cooked food yeah. that tastes really good and do you think that attitude towards it is what um can potentially make what you're doing much more accessible to people that um aren't from an indian background but have lived like more and more so that people are living extremely international lifestyles or western lifestyles let's say um do you think that that attitude makes it much more accessible to them or, totally. or how, how can they relate to what it is you're doing Firstly, with my cookbook, Saffron Soul, it's very easy to cook those recipes, most of them. I have sprinkled in a few more traditional recipes, like dokra, for example, which oh, requires yeah. steaming and things yeah. that maybe you don't want to do unless you have a bit of time. I'm really excited to know that there's a cookbook in London with dokra. <laughs> oh my God, isn't it the best thing? I love it. But it's hard to get it right. Oh, of it's course. Really hard to get... I'm, a, I'm a dokra <laughs> snob. I, there's only two people's dokra that I will enjoy, that I will eat. That's One of the them thing. being my mum. Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. And also, I, I don't even try doing it because yeah. actually, it's like they can cook it the best, so why not? And also, if I did try and cook it, I'm sure I'll get criticised. No, no, uh, too sticky and you didn't put this on. Not enough, you know. But the thing is, it's exactly. And it's not hard to follow this recipe. The problem is that there are various little tips that that are so essential like putting the muslin cloth over the mm, actual mm. lid so that the water doesn't collect yes and doesn't drop back into it because then they'll become stodgy and sticky yeah. and those little tips make your dog wrap what they are and, and soft basically yeah. did but you anyway, know how to make dog wrap before or is that no I is your mum overjoyed that you have a cookbook of these recipes she was quite annoyed that i was even creating this cookbook she's like i can't tell you this is how much turmeric <laughs> and salt like this is just stuff that you should you should know be Oh, yeah, yes. I don't care that you don't know, but don't ask me how much to put in there. Like, it's like salt should always be, you know, asra, which means around, you know, about yeah, around. approximately. Yeah, honestly, it's the conversation that we still have. You know, she looks at other cookbooks and she's like, "See, she's written salt to taste. Why didn't you do that?" I'm like, "That was three years ago, mom." But yeah, so she's um. She's she's obviously thrilled that I've done what I've done, but <laughs> but uh, she it was very hard getting these recipes out of my mum yeah, and my grandmother. Yeah. Uh, but it's it, it's really nice because I think what this generation of not necessarily just Indians but also Indians, I think as an Indian growing up in London, I was fed all these delicious things that actually. I would have no clue. In university, I didn't cook. But mm. I didn't necessarily crave it either. I was on that yeah. whole Weight Watchers diet. And I it was ridiculous. <laughs> I was like, for a whole year, I did Weight Watchers. So I just, my body shape changed. I thought I needed to lose weight. And I didn't think Indian food would allow, would allow me to do it. Mm. So And I also, I was seeing changes in my hair. My hair was falling out. Mm. I, had, I had skin issues. I'm not saying all of yeah. that was related to diet. Mm. I'm sure a lot of it was hormones. But I think and diet... And what was going exactly. on in your life as well that you talked about earlier. Yes, although university is different. But yeah, no, yeah, what I meant yeah. at university when I was dieting, um, I don't think I realised that actually continuing or eradicating Indian food from my diet and spices and the healing things mm. was actually doing me more harm than good. Yeah. And that actually it wasn't all... I used to think of thinness as the, the definition or the yardstick of being healthy. Mm. As opposed to and nutrition. And wonderfully the world has hugely changed now with huge yeah. rise in body positivity and people understanding that if you're thinner it doesn't necessarily mean you're healthier exactly. than the next Energy person. levels, you know, how your mind feels and how that's yes. impacted by what you eat. Yeah. yeah. Um, nourishing your yeah. body, mind and everything. Yeah. By eating well what you well, you are what you eat and, and there's so many books and people talk about this yes but it's really important on every level yeah those principles can stay with you right 
um, because I think they really enhance the way you sort of think about life and the way you think about digestion. Yeah, and that's a really, really um, significant thing about Ayurveda that to some degree it might tell you what to and what not to eat, but actually it's about principles that you can apply to any diet and any lifestyle um, so that those values exactly. can, can fit in with what you already do. Exactly, exactly. And I think it doesn't mean that somebody who's not who's living in another part of the world, you know, in Europe somewhere, um, they could have the best lifestyle. They could be very Ayurvedic because they live by the principles of mm. what our ancestors lived by. Mm. But they may not eat the same food and that doesn't matter. You go with seasonal cooking, eating, and actually your body is also conditioned in a way by your ancestry in a way as well. Mm. So sometimes you may not, you, your palate or your stomach may not be able to digest certain cuisines because that that's maybe not in your DNA. Do you know what I mean? So you yeah, might be absolutely. more inclined towards certain things and that's totally fine. Yeah. You don't need to be having bowls of kitchery every day. <laughs> I, di- I, I didn't grow up like that. So um, yeah. I do love it, but I don't have it every single day of my life. And can you share with our listeners, do, do you have to be a vegetarian to be able to follow Ayurvedic rituals or an Ayurvedic diet or lifestyle? No, not at all. Um, I'm vegetarian and Ayurveda also doesn't talk about veganism because ghee is very, very important. Um, so dairy products are important. But that doesn't mean that you can't apply Ayurveda to your life if you're vegan or meat eater. Mm. Um, it doesn't specifically say you can't have anything. So, and also rituals. You know, I, like I said, my book isn't just food. There's a lot more in there. So it doesn't really matter what you're eating to be doing certain rituals. But it's important to realise, and we are we are, society's now realising the importance of having more vegetables in our diet. Mm. Um, mm. So no matter what you eat, it's definitely... And while I am a complete vegetarian, and I'd hope that more people are vegetarian in the world, and, you know, for whatever reason, um, it is important to just generally have more vegetables in your diet. <laughs> Environmental, yeah. ethical, whatever reason it is. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, Saffron Soul and Prajna is available. These two books are available. If someone wanted to know more about you or find you, where's the best place for them to, to find you? Apart from my cafe, which is in Kingley Court, second floor, inside Chai Yoga, <laughs> called Chai by Mira, my website is probably the best place. So it's miramanic.com, that's M-I-R-A-M-A-N-E-K.com, and Instagram, which is, again, at miramanic. So it's all very simple, yes. at miramanic, miramanic.com, and sign up to my newsletter because I send, send out regular newsletters with recipes and new events coming Amazing. up. Amazing. So we ask all of our presenters to share um, either a mantra or a tip or a meditation or a tool um, as a takeaway um, from the podcast. So if you had to give one thing to share with our listeners that they should either do or practice or perhaps even eat or know, what would that be from Miramanic? Food is really important to me, but I think... In this moment, I'm thinking of breath. Hmm. And I think when you're in a moment of anxiety, stress, panic, um, sadness, pain, you're about to start crying, or you're about to enter a meeting and you're like, oh my God, take that moment to just have a deep breath and collect your thoughts and collect yourself. And literally slow your breath down so your inhale is really long. Hold it there for a few seconds and then a really long exhale and do that a few times and do see the impact of that on your brain and how you react afterwards because that breath or those few breaths will make a massive difference to how you conduct yourself after. Mm -hmm. And that breath really is what helped me when I went through that whole year of craziness. Um, 
learning the yogic breath and slowing my breath down in moments of panic and when I was about to start crying or whatever it was, it really helped me calm myself. Mm. It may not have healed me. Over time, it probably did that. Mm. But actually, understanding the power of your breath is really essential Mm. or powerful because there is so much depth in your breath that we just don't use. And once you start exploring that breath, you'll realise the power of it amazing thank you so much Mira that's going to be so useful for our listeners and for everyone and for being with us today on the podcast I hope that um, all of our listeners have been able to take away a lot of wisdom from this um, as well as looking at the the way they live their lives and the rituals that they may already be doing or may not be doing and hopefully can pick up some more from you and, and from your talk with us thank you for having me here today thank you For more information about the Wellbeing Festival, visit mindbodyspirit.co.uk. I've been your host, Bhavani Vyas, and this episode was produced by Josh Roberts and our sound engineer, Erin Milligan. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back very soon.